Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Hey, today I'm here with uh, Paul Lang. Paul is uh, an accomplished aviation attorney. He began his FAA, or he began his legal career with the FAA as a lawyer, and now he helps businesses, aircraft operators, and companies with, uh, with all their aviation needs. Paul's been in the industry and around the industry for about 30 years, very experienced and accomplished attorney, and happy to have you on, Paul. How are you doing up in Connecticut today? All right. Thanks, Craig, and uh, thanks for inviting me to, uh, uh, to speak with you today, as well as for facilitating these important industry discussions. Appreciate it. No, it's, uh, it's great. Thank you for uh, making some time to, uh, to be here today. So, hey, you know, I uh, was down a corporate jet investor last year, and I know you and I have talked about that conference a little bit and what's happening in uh, the Part 135 charter industry. Um, democratization of business jets. We've now got companies up your way, like your way, like Blade Helicopter. What's, what's got you, uh, what's got you scratching your head a little bit is people are finding innovative ways to fly and make money off of uh, aircraft. Well, I think it's just uh, an evolution from the days of uh, uh, illegal charter of, uh, of lore where, um, FAA would look at issues that they thought were illegal charter, and some were, and some weren't. And when you move into the the so-called democratization, the updated current industry models, they're all very fact-specific. They're very different, and FAA and DOT have uh, differing jurisdiction and differing views, not unlike uh, FAA and IRS have differing views of what commercial aviation is. So the the problems are that the regs haven't get haven't caught up with a lot of the new charter by the seat business models, and there there really hasn't been much in the way of guidance material either on the part of DOT or uh, FAA. So when you look at these models, you mentioned Blade. Uh, there's also Jet Smarter, Surf Air. Um, you know, a, a lot of different ones out there using apps to self-aggregate uh, aircraft charter and so on. Where you you really need to look at, you know, how are they operating and can they lawfully operate with an on-demand air carrier certificate under 135, or do you actually need commuter authority from the DOT. Some of them actually uh, do need the commuter authority and get it. Others may be on the fence. And, you know, therein lies some of the problems, some of the risks going forward. And what you worry about is unintended consequences. If you're not operating lawfully, it, it just affects so many things from financing to insurance to 
you name it, um, you know, in whether there's an accident or not. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's so let's back up a little bit. You're a, a you know, accomplished aviation attorney. You've been in the industry for a long time. You you know what's what's keeping you busy these days? Is it aircraft transactions? Is it regulatory issues? What uh, where's most of your focus right now? Is it is it uh, litigation? Okay. Well, we we do uh, litigation, transactions, and regulatory work, and our focus is really like a Venn diagram. It's really you know where the intersection of all of those come into play. So what what we are seeing a lot of there's there's certainly a lot of transactions these days, and certainly leading into the end of the year, and and that happens typically um, every year. The FAA enforcement business, in terms of total numbers is down because of the FAA's compliance philosophy. However, the cases that they are bringing tend to be larger. So they are, they are more, they're labor intensive. Um, the Hinman case, for, for example, we're not involved in, in that one, but um, uh, we actually take a look at the docket almost on a weekly basis because it is so important with the FAA's focus on um, illegal charter. So we look at that. We look at the, um, uh, you know, there's everybody and his brothers trying to set up uh, new charter by the seat models and think they're uh, building a better mousetrap. And so each of those is different factually. So there's a lot of that going on. We have a lot of operators who are doing deals with those types of operators. Um, we've got a lot of FBO work um, going on because there's consolidation um, going on in the FBO industry. And um, there's so there's a lot of transactional work, whether it's FBO industry, whether it's um, pilot pathway programs, there's deals going on there, and all of which impact. Uh, they have regulatory impacts. They've got uh, concerns for litigation, insurance, liability, and so that's you know we're we're spending a lot of time in each of our core areas, whether it be the the pure regulatory work or the the pure transactional work like the the uh, uh, corporate jet. Mm-hmm. Uh, buy, sell, lease, you know, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of non-competes going on. There's airspace issues that we're, uh, we're litigating, you know, encroachment, part 77, real estate development near airports. Um, so it's actually, uh, while, while there's concerns for our industry, it's actually a very dynamic and exciting time uh, because, you know, what we're doing on a day-to-day basis is, is really dealing with the future of what our industry is going to look like in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Does it, pretty fortunate to be able to be in there. Does that scare you a little bit? I mean, with the industry, you know, it's, it seems like it's moving pretty fast. I mean, when you, you, you talk about, we talked about Blade, Jet Smarter, a couple mm-hmm. of the other operators, Surfair. Um, um, well, it, it, um, I guess the pace of it doesn't concern me. What concerns me going forward to, to some extent is what's it going to look like? And uh, there's pilot and mechanic shortages. There's, you know, uh, there's lack of light general aviation air, 
planes for folks to train in and, and so on. So the industry is changing rapidly. The, the dynamic nature of that and helping shape that is really pretty exciting. I'm very excited about that, but the concerns are I personally prefer to see a vibrant um, multi-dimensional aviation industry going forward that continues what we have uh, been very fortunate to see in the United States, which is you've got all sizes of general aviation, business aviation, leading up to airlines, whereas outside the United States, you see very little general aviation, as, as you know. Mm -hmm. right. It's much more airline-focused. And that's, that's my concern for the future, and hoping that there's ways to shape that through a variety of the, the different dynamics that you see uh, in our industry today. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just one, you, you talked about kind of, you know, Europe, Asia, internationally. You know, the FAA has a 1,500-hour rule, obviously, for pilots flying 121 and 135 here in the States. But you go overseas, and you, you know, you might be to 720 or, you know, 777, and, uh, you know, the guy in the right seat is, you know, might be 300, 350 hours. Um, big diversity and uh, you know, big diversity in regulations. What do you, you know? What do you see the FAA? You know, the F, how is the FAA handling all that, or do they do they really care? I think the FAA cares a lot about that, and I think the FAA and the industry, the interests and the motivations are very consistent on both of those. I mean. You know, I remember when that rule uh, was working its way through Congress and FAA uh, in private conversations didn't like it at all. Um, and FAA, I think, has really been sympathetic to the industry and done everything that it possibly could to try and find ways to get those numbers down. And they have found certain ways to, to get them down, not just with military training, but you know, with more formalized training um, along the way. So I think um, FAA has done a great job and been very motivated to try and get those numbers down. And I don't think that they have given up on that, um, that either. So I think there's really going to be, um, it's going to be interesting in the future at some point uh, if the pilot shortage gets uh, so bad that, you know, that there may actually need to be a legislative solution that helps fix that. I hope we don't get to that point, but um, I, I, I wonder if we're getting closer and closer to it. Do you think that they're actively working behind the scenes and talking to the politicians and saying, hey, this may not, you know, this may not work? I mean, obviously it was the... Uh, what was it the Buffalo the Buffalo uh, Dash Eight crash right. or Q four hundred crash that brought it on? Um, right. Do you think that they may you know relax it a little bit and strengthen it with some different regulations so far as you know rest you know you know crew rest rules and you know things of the sort you know with some you know strengthen it with some different regulations? I think there's an opportunity to relax them. And like anything else, I think this is an evolution. And when you uh, take a, a very high-level view at um, regulation of aviation in the U.S. and safety statistics of aviation in the U.S., you tend to see 
um, things like SMS, voluntary disclosure programs throughout, um, whether it's FAA operations, whether it's maintenance, you know, right on down the line, where uh, when you start having a lot of documented processes in place, data-driven decision-making, data-driven training, um, then I think you start to get to the point where if FAA is able to propose a reduction in total time, they have an evidentiary-based argument to make to Congress to meet a need of a pilot shortage. And I think that's where the opportunity is. They, you know, quite frankly, they never had the data in the past. You know, to some extent, you know, in, in back early in my career, there were the stories of the, the 350 or 400 hour uh, pilots who would then uh, get on with uh, a major air carrier. Few and far between, but it happened. Right. But some of them came out of military programs and would get a furlough. So they'd go through undergraduate pilot training in the Air Force um, and then ultimately get a furlough thereafter. And then a United would have no problem picking them up. And, they, and those folks would have a career and everything worked out just great. And that was the justification for uh, the lowest numbers in the current rule. And when you move forward towards the notion of a National Aviation Academy, which has been talked uh, about within the FAA on and off for a number of years to help alleviate the pilot shortage. Um, doesn't seem to have had a whole lot of traction recently, but all these pilot pathway programs that are out there seem to get a favorable response from FAA to reduce the total number of pilot hours to then help with the entire process of getting someone into uh, from zero hours into an airliner cockpit, right? Seat an airliner. Well, you know, you, you think of you know you you look at your military pilots, you know, guys going into F-18s right now. They're coming out of undergraduate pilot training, or you know, their primary primary flight. They go to you know, something somewhere in the middle, and then ultimately, you know, it, you know, they go to a T forty five, and they're probably you know, getting to the cockpit of an F eighteen with yeah, under 300 hours in the airplane. And then a year later, they're, you know, you know, 350, 400 hours, they're a very accomplished military pilot flying a, a high-speed aircraft. Is that maybe what training needs to go towards? You know, maybe civilian training needs to go towards is something highly structured, highly disciplined, like that type of I think that, environment? I think that's exactly where it's heading. It's not that it needs to go that way. I think that's the way it, it is already heading. I think, you know, when you look back at the beginnings of Part 141 flight schools, that was uh, the goal. I'm not sure if it necessarily achieved that goal, but you tend to see more regulation through other means. In other words, um, you know, throughout the decades, insurance companies have uh, placed requirements on pilots, particularly in the uh, part 91 corporate flight department world where essentially it was, you know, regulations, higher regulations tailored to individual flight crews, including specific type training 
whether it be a flight safety or a simu flight or a simcom, but structured types of training. And that training is very much documented. It's very different than going to when at the beginning of my career when going to the local flight school and you'd get your log, just your logbook signed off by an instructor. You know, mm-hmm. these things are very, very much structured. There's modules. In fact, um, some of the latest litigation that we've been involved with has involved looking at some of those formal training programs, and they actually match. They're organized very much the same way as military flight training. They are strikingly similar in the organizational structure of how the education proceeds. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that it's, it's really a, a big difference where something needs to go. You know, you look at SMS programs, you know, the things where FAA is trying to get organizations, air, whether it be air carriers or, you know, so on, to then structure their own operations in a more organized and disciplined way that is really no different than a 121 or a military organization. Sure, sure. But you, you, you brought up a good point, too. And the FAA is only one entity with a dog in the fight. You talked about insurance companies. And insurance companies may actually have higher standards than the FAA, if, if I heard you correctly. Yeah, they, they often do. Um, and, you know, you'll see that in a lot of the, uh, the crash cases, particularly um, mishaps involving corporate jets when they look at it and say that, uh, you know, well, we, could, we could even look at, uh, you know, an extreme example of the, uh, the Falcon 50 in Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, man, yeah. Let's, and, talk, let's talk about that a little bit. Go ahead, keep going on that one. Okay. Well, I, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're well aware as, as, you know, we all are from reading the, the trade press on that, that it was a, a Falcon 50 uh, where the, uh, the left seat pilot had an ATP and he had a, uh, a type rating for the, for the Falcon 50, but it, it was limited to second in command only in the Falcon 50. And he had other type ratings. It was, uh, I think, a Learjet and a, I don't know which one, or the, and, and a Westwind. And the right seat pilot um, held a private pilot certificate, um, and I think it was just uh, airplane single engine and multi-engine land did not even have an instrument rating. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I haven't seen the insurance policy on that, but um, I'm pretty sure that that was not uh, one of the requirements in the insurance policy for operating that aircraft. The, the places where I was talking was, you know, same types of aircraft, but where an insurance underwriter uh, looks at what the, the, the operation that they're underwriting and says, you know, wait a minute, the, uh, uh, you know, this, the, the right seat pilot may be technically qualified under the regs, but doesn't have a whole lot of time in type. So we'd like an extra, um, you know, 100 hours in type, or we'd like uh, some more simulator training, or we want that first officer to have something more than a first officer type rating for that aircraft. We want a full type rating course to make us, the insurer, feel more comfortable underwriting that. And if you don't have that, 
uh, until you have that, that person is not authorized to fly the aircraft, even if they happen to be an owner. Wow. So what recourse? So this airplane goes off the end of the runway. Obviously, the insurance company is not going to pay out on a lot of stuff because there's some blatant fraud involved. Or if, if it's not fraud, it's clear you know, violations of the policy that they wrote. But you got two passengers in the back seat who paid for the charter. They're, they're, they're part 135 passengers. They're, they're critically injured. What's their recourse? And how does a okay. how does a person getting on a, a charter jet protect himself from that type of scenario? Okay, so the there were a lot of issues in there. So it's not guaranteed that um, the insurance company would deny coverage. It depends on what law applies, which state law applies, um, and that could be a number of different states. Uh, there, there may or may not be an opportunity to deny coverage on that. It may make sense. It may not. Um, and that's where good aviation plaintiffs lawyers earn their money. And then on the defense side and the insurance coverage side, where folks look at all the complicated sets of dynamics to see, you know, where all the chips fall, because it's not always that simple. So then when you move on to the poor folks in the back, um, you know, what's, what's their recourse for what looks like illegal charter? Um, you know, that, that really depends a lot on state law, where there is money, whether or not you can pierce the corporate veil, whether or not... Um, those passengers in the back can make claims against the insurance policy either directly or through the crew. So there's, there's a lot of questions there. I mean, ultimately, in the end, there's a, a good plaintiff's lawyer will find options for those folks to seek out a pool of money to help pay for their injuries. But it's not always clear at the outset where that pile of money is going to come from to compensate those folks. And hopefully there, there is money somewhere to help compensate them. But it's just, you know, without digging into the specific facts, you don't always know where it's going to come from. And then I think your last question was, how can folks help protect themselves? I mean, uh, yeah, NBAA has you know lots of great resources on their on their website on how to go about um, getting a, a charter customer can purchase, make good decisions on purchasing charter. You know, there's Argus, there's Wyvern. Um, you know, so folks can um, you know look at those ratings and and so on. Um, and there's just uh, you know doing business with known, uh, respected entities that have been around in the business for, you know, for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are, it's, it's not all that different than any other business where you want known, respected folks who've been vetted. Yeah. No, no doubt. I mean, you know, eventually you ultimately get what you pay for, right? And, um, yes. Yeah. 
the guys fly by night and they come in a little bit, you know, come in cheaper, and then you wonder why he's so much cheaper. Um, right. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, what really comes out of that Falcon 50 accident, exactly what those facts are, because I, I suspect that you're going to see some of those things. You see that a lot? I mean, in your career, have you seen, you know, those, those types of incidents happen a lot, or are they, are they truly the, you know, the, the, dark, you know, the dark horse? Are they, are they really just a, a one-off? Well, they're, they're not a one-off. I think they're thankfully few and far between, but just by virtue of what I do, you know, I've, I've seen a few dozen of them in my career, starting out prosecuting them at the FAA and then uh, defending them, uh, you know, afterwards uh, uh, as a private practice lawyer. And the, the challenges are, and the interesting parts are, you know, occasionally you actually see truly bad actors, but a lot of times they are not necessarily bad actors as much as they may not be the best business people. They may not be paying the most attention to detail on all the regulatory requirements. And FAA and DOT don't always provide the greatest guidance material mm-hmm. on what their regs are. And when I was an FAA lawyer, I was taught it's not up to us, FAA, to teach the industry how to operate within the regs. It's up, for the, it's up to the industry to learn how to do it on their own and operate safely within the regs. Gotcha. So, that's, so we've seen you know, far too many of them over the years, but, but I don't want to mislead you and, and let you think that it's rampant out there because it's not. So when I was, a couple years ago, I was talking to one of my customers and he had a Citation Bravo. And his Bravo went AOG for a, for whatever, and he had to be in Florida. So he called up his his buddy who owned the Citation Ten in the same hangar and said, "Hey, can I uh, can I borrow your Citation Ten? You know, I'll write you a check for the fuel. Legal or not? I think it's it's that's very fact specific. It you know it." You're talking about uh, 91501, uh, 91 subpart F, and that's timesharing, interchange. You can do joint ownership there. And, and those sorts of things happen, and there's ways to do it lawfully, and there's ways that are unlawful. We're going to get some more guidance on that likely within probably the next year or two as a result of that Hinman case in Michigan. You know, that's all about timesharing agreements and what you can and can't do under a timesharing agreement. Okay. Now, the Hinman case, talk about that a little bit more. It's some folks up in Michigan, and they all created some agreements that they could use each other's airplanes. Right. It was. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, there's, it's, it's the first time where we've actually seen FAA go after illegal charter in uh, a U.S. district court in this way. And here, the the facts of the case are there were two corporate jets owned by a subsidiary of these Hinman companies, and um, they had, I'm, I'm told, 
many timesharing agreements. The complaint lists three different timeshare agreements, and the specifics of the complaint are that they charged more than was allowable under subpart D of 91501. And they didn't have a 135 certificate. So therefore, according to the government, they violated every section of part 135 because they didn't have the air carrier certificate. They weren't lawfully operating as a time under a timeshare agreement. Um, they sent invoices that exceeded what was allowable under 91501. And as a result, FAA viewed this as uh, an entity that they wanted to, or a situation that they wanted to make an example out of. So the complaint um, seeks, I believe it's $3.5 million from the Hinman companies uh, as a result of this. And FAA is, is uh, you know, liberally making, you know, an example out of these folks to hopefully deter others. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate thing is, if you're charting your airplane out, have a rock solid, you know, part 135 certificate with a DO, with a chief pilot, an agreement in place. Yeah, that's, that's the easiest way is to have that cover. Obviously, there's a lot of regulatory burdens that go with that. And there's nothing wrong with a valid time-sharing agreement that follows um, 91501. Mm-hmm. But you got you to gotta make sure you're not engaged in illegal charter or even close, you know, to gray market charter just so that you can avoid problems and scrutiny and, um, you know, insurance coverage problems in the event of an accident. You know, and it doesn't have to be a catastrophic accident. It could be something as simple as, you know, what we've seen within the last year where, you know, two airplanes on a, on a ramp at an FBO. One wasn't chocked properly and rolls into the other one, and it costs about a million and a half in, in you know, damage to, uh, to fix, you know, that goes under a whole policy. So you want to make sure that the folks who were responsible for operating that airplane and parking it on that ramp or operating it and using it are properly insured under the policy. And that just goes to looking at, a, you know, a proper time-sharing agreement. Right. Now, with this Hinman thing, were they, I mean, were they actively trying to, you know, in your, you know, you handle this question however you want to, you know, do you, do you think that was, their, their agreements were done more out of ignorance or were they, were they really just trying to do the minimums that they could without the FAA, you know, peeking under the veil? It's, it's really hard to say because, no one has, no one except the parties in litigation have enough facts um, on that right now. So what's out there in, uh, in, in the public eye is what the U.S. Attorney's Office wrote in their complaint. And, you know, the complaint alleges three specific um, uh, sets of timesharing agreements where there were multiple flights done on two different jet aircraft, um, you know, for each of these three entities. And so with that, the, uh, it, you know, or beyond that, whether that was in flagrant disregard of the rules, whether it was, um, you know, the, the, the Hinman folks trying to evade 
the rules and, and not spend the money and the effort on a 135 certificate, whether it was uh, willful blindness on their part, whether it was just negligence and inadvertence, I don't think uh, you know, anyone in the public knows right now. And in fact, you know, like any piece of litigation, there's two sides to every story. And I think it's really going to be fascinating to, when those facts tend to come out. Who says what to whom and whom are we going to actually believe? You know, who's the trier of fact going to believe, whether it's a judge or a jury? Gotcha. So when will those, this will all come out? How long do you think this will be in litigation um, it, tied it's, up? It's, it's really hard to say. I mean, especially right now. The, uh, the last I saw at the end of last week was that um, there were uh, motions for enlargement of time. So I imagine that there's uh, settlement discussions going on right now, and neither the government nor the defendants are interested in making a record, a public record on this if there's an opportunity to settle. So in terms of a total time frame, you know, my, my guess is that it could be anywhere from one to three years before you actually get a resolution on this case. And then the question is going to be, what does that resolution look like? You know, if it <clears throat> ends up just being uh, paying cash and then keeping a low profile and then the public really doesn't know what's going on, you know, that, that is one option. I, I guess I wonder whether or not it's actually going to make it to a full-blown trial in the public eye. Um, I, I think that would be the kind of guidance that would be useful to the industry, but it's not something that litigants, including the U.S. government, um, generally, generally favor. Everybody has risk, uh, mm -hmm. no matter how strong they think their case is. Gotcha. So, yeah, that aside, we've already sort of, we've talked about, you know, pilot shortages. You know, we all know mechanics are getting very, you know, hard to find. You've been, you've been involved in some airspace and noise issues up in the Hamptons. Where do you see, uh, where do you see challenges in the industry outside of pilots and mechanics? What's happening, you know, around airports and in communities and, you know, affecting how operators operate their aircraft? Well, it's, it's, uh, you've got rising airport cost structures that are then forced on FBOs by way of uh, increasingly expensive leases. Uh, some of it is pure municipal greed. I think probably more of it than not is just the high cost of infrastructure replacement. And then you see a lot of things when um, they try and replace runways, you start to see where runways are shortened, uh, they're no longer as wide. Um, so you have all the political problems that you're aware of at Santa Monica and mm -hmm. East Hampton, where people just, uh, neighbors don't like airports at all. Some of that is uh, truly noise-based. Some of it is just a perception. But then, you know, you also have uh, things like there's a lot of trees around runways around airports and they grow. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of litigation over time, over you know a couple of decades, where trees have grown, but they're not on airport property. And there's federal money available to cut the trees. But then the folks who own the trees say, wait a minute, I like the idea that this tree 
is so high that it's actually impeding the use of that neighboring airport that I really don't like there anyway. <laughs> exactly. We saw the same thing here in Wilmington at ILM. I think uh, some folks at the, uh, the south end of uh, the airport, you know, were furious when the feds came in and cut their trees down. Yeah, and that happens at an awful lot of airports uh, uh, around the country, and some of it ends up in litigation and some doesn't. But you've got those issues. You've got, um, you know, a lot of obstructions that uh, threaten, uh, threaten the instrument approach procedures, you know, make higher minimums, and, and it's just... Uh, construction in the theoretical planes around the runway protection zones and, and things like that. And, um, you know, so there's, there's airports are under attack in a lot of different ways, uh, you know, going forward. Right. So I think that that's, that is a major problem. Uh, all the, and then all the costs where airports then, you know, they've got an obligation under their grant assurances to seek out, um, to, to make themselves as self-sustaining as possible under the rules. So to, to do that, then the lease rates increase to the FBOs, and then that has to trickle down to all the costs for everybody that, uh, all their customers. Right. And some of those customers are better able to absorb those increased costs. You know, if you're, if you're looking at Lobels and G650s, um, those increases are a much smaller percentage than they would be for a Bonanza. Correct. And, and you know, therein lies some problems where it's, it's a problem for the lower end GA, both for new pilot starts and light business aircraft, all of which contribute to the economic viability of a GA system. Well, it's just very expensive. You know, it's very expensive to fly a 182 or a Bonanza or whatever. Um, Well, I think it always has been, except that now it's it's becoming even more challenging. Right. Is Santa Monica, um, what's happened to Santa Monica, is that going to be a... uh, a trend, or is that something that's going to be unique to, to Santa Monica and perhaps East Hamptons? Well, uh, every airport has its own political challenges. Um, that old phrase of all politics is local. Right. And a lot of our business is uh, smaller airports like Santa Monica, East Hampton, all over the country. And uh, they are all challenged by the things that we have talked about here, including politics, but the specifics are, you know, very, very, very different reasons. Obviously, Santa Monica is very, very concerning, and it's going to be, you know, interesting to see, you know, what happens in the relatively near future um, in the uh, uh, in the Court of Appeals, uh, D.C. Circuit there. So, um, you know, I, I fear that it is a, a concern going forward that a lot of municipalities who dislike uh, their, their airports will look at and have looked at um, Santa Monica and East Hampton as examples. And they, they had very different litigation profiles, but in the end, um, you know, they're, they're both being challenged, you know, as viable airports in the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, well Santa Monica, what, they, they, they cut it down to, what, 3,500 
3,500 feet? Yeah, I, be- I believe it was 3,500. So the jets are effectively, the jets of the turbo, or turboprops are effectively cut out. So your, you know, your, your light aircraft in and out of there for at least the foreseeable future, but you know, ultimately that could change at some right. point. That too. was the goal there. Yeah. And then East Hampton is the, the grant assurances run out in 2021. And then it's, it's much harder to keep it open as an airport. If the town decides to, to close it, um, you know, after the grant assurances run out. And then the billionaires will be fighting the millionaires, or I should say the millionaires will be fighting the billionaires. About whose helicopter is allowed in, right? Well, actually, one of the dynamics that I've heard is, is that uh, uh, a possibility of the, uh, the folks who own uh, the, those types of aircraft and, and those homes may then just decide to go someplace else, and they have the wherewithal and the ability, uh, the, you know, the benefit of GA is they can fly someplace else pretty easy. Right. Absolutely. So you 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 play a pretty active role in NBAA. You're on the uh, NATA or NATA or uh, or charter committee. Are you are you bullish about the uh, you bullish about the industry moving forward? What do you uh, your, your thoughts? You bullish? You bearish? How do you uh, uh, how do you see things? Yeah, I'm 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 still bullish. It's a it's a dynamic industry with lots of changes happening. Um, I'm I'm just. You know, very happy to be able to be a part of it to help influence the future of our industry. Um, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities out there. You see the uh, dynamics of a um, democratization of air charter. I mean, that it's just fascinating to be part of that. And then through uh, the NBAA Advisory Council and the NATA Air Charter Committee, um, you know, I'm I'm at the forefront of that, and that's that's just really neat to have somebody actually listen to me when it comes to policy uh, as it's made. So not only is it useful to know, but to be able to make a difference is, um, is where it's pretty exciting for me. Awesome. Well, hey, look, I appreciate you coming on. Next time uh, we do this, we're going to talk about uh, the future with, uh, with UAVs. That seems Sounds good to, to be, me. That seems to be the, uh, that seems to be the, uh, the thing on everybody's radar. Um, yeah. Down the road, down the road. So uh, I look forward to catching up. We'll, we'll 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 dissect that one a little bit. But uh, sounds good. Thanks for coming on, Paul. Uh, appreciate it. Let's do it again soon.